All right, everybody. This musical intro is in honor of uh, Richard Hanania, who claims in our most recent discussion a few days ago to not know the song Bookie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Which I found outrageous and unacceptable. So I had to make him aware of the song, which once I cl- played the sick beat, he then did admit that he was familiar with the song. But I feel as though to not know it by name, to not even recognize instinctively the name Boogie Shoes, it was a grave injustice. So even if my having now played that brief clip gets me saddled with copyright infringements, then so be it. It'll have been worth it to make the point about the exalted cultural status of the song Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. So uh, yesterday I did a podcast with uh, Thaddeus Russell. Some of you may be familiar with him. I've done his podcast a number of times in the past, and this was the first one I'd done in about 10 months, I would say. And he mostly wanted to talk to me about my experience at the NATO Summit, which, of course, I have written about and spoken about it fairly substantial length but in talking about the larger implications of it he asked me if i had seen or read this speech by mike pompeo that was delivered at the hudson institute last month and i had known of this speech i saw maybe snippets of it or cursory summaries of it but it was. Uh, it took place probably a day or so before I had left for Spain, so it just kind of fell off my radar, and I hadn't really uh, taken the effort to digest it yet. And I was implored to do so by Thaddeus Russell yesterday over the course of our conversation because, according to him, it was extremely striking and ominous, foreboding. And, of course, that doesn't surprise me knowing who the deliverer of the speech was, Mike Pompeo. It was probably the most, I would say, pernicious influence within the Trump administration for the entire tenure of that administration on a whole host of fronts, but obviously most concentrated in the the, uh, foreign-slash-national security front because that's where he had domain as Secretary of State and prior to that CIA director. Um, And so I could kind of anticipate what Mike Pompeo might say in a speech like this, given that he's apparently preparing to run for president. Now, who knows if... (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to probably cough intermittently over the course of this conversation because I'm still dealing with lingering COVID effects, although I'm powering through it. So don't be too mournful for me. And you don't have to keep in your thoughts and prayers either. Um, Mike Pompeo clearly is 
at least in the early stages of preparing for a potential presidential run. I mean, he's going around endorsing midterm candidates. He has a book coming out. He's doing these policy speeches. He's building up like a political apparatus. So he's doing everything that you would do if you were intending to go down that route. Um, Now, how that will comport with a potential run by Trump is anybody's guess. There was a report that came out yesterday or the day before, was it, that Trump has already decided that he's going to run. And the only outstanding question is whether he's going to be announcing before the midterms or after. I guess the political logic of announcing before the midterms is that we would crowd out some other potential challengers from running for the Republican nomination. Um, Obviously, people talk about DeSantis the most, but that would also include like Pompeo or even a Mike Pence. And whether any of those people are going to be willing to run against Trump is an interesting and open question. I think there's going to be a clamor for Trump not to be allowed to run unopposed. And not just for not just by fielding a token, you know, anti-Trump candidate like a uh, Larry Hogan or someone, but you know, a genuinely bona fide, uh, red-blooded America first-leaning Republican uh, is going to be beckoned to run, probably even if Trump also does run. At least that would be my sense. And um, I'm going to try to go to this policy conference or what's been called a policy conference that's going to be held in a week or so in D.C. And it'll be the first time that Trump apparently has been back to D.C. And it's something called the America First Institute, I think it is, or some think tank that was founded by former Trump administration officials is holding some kind of policy conference, and Trump will make his triumphant return to D.C. at that date. And, of course, all the rumors will be swirling, and the anticipation will be building about when he will announce officially his his run, which, of course, he's also been doing everything that you would expect someone to do if they were going to be running for president. He's certainly not just um, gone quietly into that good night. He's going around even to Alaska last weekend, I thought I saw, and making his endorsements and, of course, intervening in every primary under the sun. And so, you know, uh, unless lightning strikes or the meteorite hits the earth, I think it's fair to assume that he is, in fact, running. Um, And so the role of Pompeo in the upcoming Republican Debates will be interesting because he'll be amongst the most senior Republican foreign policy honchos involved in the debate. He'll be very much different from a guy like Pompeo, uh, from a Bolton rather, because Bolton, as everybody probably knows, you know, fell out in dramatic fashion with Trump and then wrote a book that sold a bajillion copies in a week where he took Trump to task and now is viewed very as a 
as a, a villain <coughs> in Trump land. <clears throat> Uh, but Pompeo was never anything like that in terms of his dealings with Trump or his relationship with the broader Trump movement, if you want to call it that. Pompeo, very skillfully and adroitly, was probably the one official within the Trump administration who did not fall out with Trump and who consciously seemed to cultivate a fruitful relationship with Trump and is not some kind of persona non grata in the Trump Movement, at least in terms of his own individual kind of dealings with Trump himself. So, um, and Pompeo is also one of these people who kind of follows along the same vein as a Tom Cotton type, I would say, infusing together what they will, you know, gesture at as some sort of America first type nationalism or some foreign policy worldview that is associated with the MAGA movement, fusing that together with the more kind of traditional, many people will call it neocon, but I think that's not really much of a usefully descriptive term anymore, but fusing it together with other strains of, Amer of Republican foreign policy thinking that are seen at times to be in, in tension with Trump. Pompeo, and uh, Tom Cotton, uh, people like that, have uh, have set out on a project of trying to bring those different tendencies in congruence with one another. And Pompeo seems to have done a fairly good job at it in that just he seems to have been, done a politically efficacious job. Uh, and so his speech at this uh, Hudson Institute a couple weeks ago Hudson Institute being a think tank that, again, used to be saw, seen as the preeminent neoconservative think tank, or one of them anyway, uh, but also like other main, mainline Republican institutions kind of changed or modified its branding and orientation over the years to subsume into it some of this America first type sentiment, yet maintain their kind of institutional fidelity to their uh, origins or their uh, precursor state as the these bastions of neoconservative type thinking. Um, and so uh, I do think that Pompeo's manifesto here that he delivered at the Hudson Institute is going to be a significant uh, harbinger of at the outlines of what a forthcoming Republican primary debate might look like, at least in terms of foreign policy, because it would be fascinating to see how many Republicans would be willing, meaning prominent Republicans, not just random people online, but people with somewhat some stature or sway within the party machinery. Uh, it would be fascinating to see how many of them agree or disagree with Pompeo. So the title of this speech is alone fairly interesting. And the title of the speech is, if I could just pull it up, where the hell did it go? Uh, one second, sorry. The title of the speech is as follows...
don't know where did they did they remove it just to screw with me as I was preparing for this. <laughs> Colin, no, they didn't. Okay, it's called War Ukraine and a Global Alliance for Freedom. Okay, so the the main news peg of it is Ukraine, I guess you would say, but that's of course nowhere near the limitation of Pompeo's speech. So while he does say, for example, that no peaceful settlement is tenable for Ukraine. He says, that, here's the exact quote, America and the nations of the world cannot continue the pretense that war in Ukraine can end in a negotiated peace. <coughs> for such a peace cannot be negotiated with Vladimir Putin. Okay, so that's a pretty clear, unequivocal statement that any sort of diplomatic advancement to bring about a cessation of hostilities in Ukraine is just totally off the table as per the lights of Pompeo. But that doesn't make Pompeo all that much different from the Biden administration. They're also writing off the prospect of any sort of negotiated settlement. And, you know, if you take Biden's infamous decree at face value from uh, in Warsaw back in March, he said that, you know, Putin must go. And so if Putin must go in order to achieve a diplomatic settlement, then Biden and Pompeo are seemingly of two of uh, one mind on that particular subject. So that's part of what Pompeo was getting at here. But he also, you know, goes even further. He says that the war in Ukraine is a quote bl- planned genocide. He says this genocide that we're seeing today is like the Holodomor engineered by Stalin that murdered millions of Ukrainians, and it must be named to be fought. He says that Putin is both a mass murderer and a serial killer simultaneously. And he then tries to declare that Putin's aim is to, quote, expunge Ukraine as a sovereign nation and a people. Now, maybe there are elements of truth to that. I mean, there's been a debate this whole time about like, what is the precise motivation for the war? Uh, but rather than getting into the merits of whether that's correct, it, this is clearly part of an argument that Pompeo was building for why U.S. support of Ukraine must not waver. But here's the, here's the kicker, and I think why this is really worth paying attention to. So, yeah, he does say we must aid Ukraine for, for to do so is part of our first duty to America and to Americans, and he even likens Zelensky to George Washington. But all this is in furtherance of a larger geopolitical project that Pompeo clearly wants to see himself on the vanguard of. And he says, by aiding Ukraine, we undermine the creation of a Russian-Chinese axis bent on exerting military and economic hegemony in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East. He says, we must prevent the formation of a, quote, pan-Eurasian colossus. That's right. Say that with me. Pan-Eurasian colossus. <laughs> Incorporating Russia, but led by China. So he's kind of weaving together this... Um, this kind of canvas of the geostrategic plotting that has Ukraine as a linchpin 
but it's only one linchpin among many to mix a metaphor. And so, for, for instance, in addition to that, because the ultimate aim here is to prevent the accession of China, according to Pompeo, he also says that he would immediately declare diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. So he would forego whatever limitations on the diplomatic recognition that the U.S. might bring to Taiwan from, the ni- from that 1970 act that spelled out the so-called strategic ambiguity relationship. And he says that must be dispensed with and that Taiwan should be recognized. So that would be like more or less as close to a declaration of war on China as you can get, I would think, or at least a giant, giant provocation of China that would rapidly accelerate this lurching into confrontation with China. That, of course, is what Pompeo apparently wants to see done on day one. So that's, that's already in the bag by his lights. And it goes further, though. And this is relevant to the whole, to the whole NATO summit, which I've been talking about quite a bit. Because, interestingly, <coughs> whereas a year or so ago, you might have discounted these ravings about China in particular, as the province mainly of Republican hawks, right? So they're the ones who are inordinately fixated on China. You have Steve Bannon ranting constantly about the Chinese Communist Party, and he'll, they'll underscore the word communist in the term Chinese Communist Party in order to set the shiver down the spines of their listeners and viewers. Um, and they want to really increase the tactics that are being employed to counteract China. So that's something that's been burgeoning on the, among Republican or right-wing hawks for quite some time now. Uh, but more and more, this isn't just a strictly conservative or right-wing view. It's actually been adopted progressively into the liberal mainstream. And I think that was manifest at the NATO summit in the text of that strategic decree that was issued, where for the first time in the history of NATO... They identify China as a chief antagonist, and they say that NATO is going to be expanding into the, quote, Indo-Pacific in order to combat Chinese influence. And so in this speech, Pompeo does something that kind of um, uh, underscores where all these international institutions are moving toward anyway. So this is not a fringe view he's expressing. It's one that's getting more and more mainstream currency. He says, the United States must help in building of the three lighthouses for liberty. These beacons should be centered on nations that have great strife, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. They can be hubs of new security architecture that links alliances of, freedoms, uh, alliances of free nations globally, reinforcing the strengths of each member state. And here's the kicker. In time, linking these three bastions with NATO, as well as the new and expanded security framework for the Indo-Pacific. And this will form a global alliance for freedom. Okay, so I guess let me just to translate what he's saying there. He's saying that Ukraine and Taiwan are these new hubs for this nascent security architecture that the U.S. is building 
in order to combat the the new, newest threat that, on the world stage, which is this pan Eurasian colossus led by China and incorporating Russia. And so the new readouts for this security architecture are Ukraine and Taiwan with Israel thrown in for reasons that don't seem quite obvious. I mean, of, other than that, yeah, of course, Israel has always been a focal point of American, quote, security strategy, but not really in the sort of new way that's at least being ascribed by Pompeo to Ukraine and Taiwan. So I guess we'll leave Israel to the side for the moment. But Pompeo wants Ukraine and Taiwan incorporated within NATO. He wants NATO at the forefront of defending the security and integrity and whatever else of Ukraine and Taiwan. And he wants this to be kind of the thrust of the new geostrategic scheming that apparently the next Republican president will be undertaking. Um, so Pompeo has a very grandiose and elaborate and inflammatory vision of how U.S. foreign policy ought to be progressing at the moment. And he does something that you see a lot of Republicans do, which is he's trying to preempt some of the skepticism or wariness about U.S. support of Ukraine by seeking to link it inextricably with China. Because all you have to do is say Chinese Communist Party over and over again. And I guess the idea is that you can cajole these otherwise recalcitrant conservatives to support your initiative. Because he's not only arguing about the support for, for Ukraine for its own sake or even to beat back Russia. Supporting Ukraine, per Pompeo, is also all about ensuring that China can't become this global villainous power. Now, these are this is a theory that is more and more being trotted out by Republican officials, and not only Republican officials, but Republicans have a specific interest in trotting out this theory because they need a line of argumentation to counteract some of the skepticism that might be growing within their own ranks. Um, and Pompeo does it by also making reference to how, you know, he's this homespun guy from Kansas and he goes around and talks to his constituents or I guess his erstwhile constituents from when he was a member of Congress from Kansas. And he tells them that, you know, the farmers and the, the machinists out in Wichita, they also need to support this foreign policy. Here's the way he puts it, quote, why should a machinist in Wichita, Kansas, or a school teacher in Des Moines care about what happens in the Donbass? <laughs> That's kind of his prompt. And uh, he doesn't leave it too ambiguous who he's trying to appeal to by, uh, for some reason, bringing up Des Moines, which, uh, as you may know, ha is in Iowa. And Iowa has a caucus that generally goes first in <laughs> presidential nominating cycles. Um, so th this is a political argument that he's 
fashioning, and presumably it would it would it will undergird his uh, campaign. And it's an ex- incredibly extravagant vision of kind of global U.S. primacy that keeps expanding. And it's expanding in concert with what NATO has done. Now, I do think Pompeo will put on a different sheen to this argument than, you know, Joe Biden might. So it's going to be more about emphasizing, you know, U.S. energy independence and maybe have a bit more brashly nationalistic overtones. But really, it's not all that different from the logic undergirding something like what happened at NATO, which was this historic expansion in the remit of NATO at the behest of the U.S. into the, quote, Indo-Pacific. And the rhetoric about Russia mirrors pretty much what Pompeo is saying here. So uh, there's a way in which Pompeo is auditioning himself to be the new spokesperson for the the conservative or right Republican wing of establishment consensus on this kind of new coalescing global Cold War narrative, or even a hot war, you might say. Um, and I think it's worth paying attention to in that respect. So if I'm able to get into this America First uh, policy conference thingy in D.C., uh, in a week or so, this is one of the topics that I'm going to be keen to uh, ask people about to see, to just take the temperature of Republicans who apparently are trying to be catered to by Pompeo here and uh, see if they find his arguments persuasive. But uh, I, I really only scratched the surface of what he said in this speech. And if you're interested, I would recommend going and listening to it or, or reading it because it's going to be a pretty telling barometer of where the Republican Party elites are at heading into the next presidential cycle. And it's going to be additionally interesting to try to ascertain how many Republican movers and shakers agree with this manifesto that Pompeo has laid out or how many have uh, qualms with it as an overextension of U.S. power that they don't think is consistent with their America First's worldview or what have you. Now, I'm not 100% sure what difference, this is what I was talking about with actually Thaddeus uh, Russell, I don't really understand what difference they think that Pompeo has with Donald Trump himself. Uh, It seems like Pompeo was the most influential official in the Trump administration, and there, in his own way, he's carrying on the legacy of the MAGA movement. I never saw Trump and Pompeo come into tension with one another or even disagree with one another. So if there's something in here that is inconsistent with the MAGA movement's foreign policy views, then you know that'll have to be spelled out by someone who can speak on that subject with some authority. Otherwise, it's just a lot of conjecture as to you know some supposed fissure between the neocons and the MAGA nationalists or whatever. That those distinctions seem to be me to be more and more fuzzy over time, such uh, to the point of not being even intelligible. Um, and uh, just a quick notice: people should. Let me know if they have any further information about this. But uh, shortly before starting this call-in, I noticed that there was a bulletin that went out 
reported by uh, Pravda, this Ukrainian English language publication, seems to be usually pretty reliable, where they're quoting what this representative of the Ukraine military intelligence said on TV today. And this Ukrainian official said that these new weapon systems, so the HIMARS, they're called, the missile systems that the U.S. has been sending to Ukraine to much fanfare, um, these are going to be used to strike Crimea. That's what, the, that's what this representative of Ukrainian military intelligence says. He says, quote, it is also one of the targets that should be hit in order to guarantee the safety of our citizens, our facilities in Ukraine in general. And he's talking about Crimea because it's, quote, a hub for the transfer of all equipment and weapons that come from the Russian Federation to the southern regions of our country. And there's a lot of chatter right now that a new offensive is starting in the war. I mean, who knows what exactly that will amount to. Far be it from me to speculate along those lines with any degree of certainty. Uh, But if you look at the Telegram channels and everything, there's talk about a big offensive underway. Is it a Ukrainian counteroffensive? Is it a Russian offensive? I see chatter along both lines, but there seems to be some kind of ramping up of hostilities that's uh, in the offing within the next 24 hours or so. So does that include this apparent warning that Crimea is a next, the next target using American-provided weapons? I don't know. But uh, it is also the case that just two days ago, the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine issued a, uh, issued a warning calling on all Americans in Ukraine to, quote, depart immediately based on a security alert around missile threats that are incoming. So what do they know? I don't know. We, we keep getting told by U.S. intelligence officials that they have such little insight into the operational tactics or status of the Ukraine military. So if they do know something, you know, then uh, maybe they have greater insight into those <laughs> tactics than they have led on in the past because it's uh, certainly not clear at least if you look at the public statements around the transfer of these longer and longer range missile systems to Ukraine, that the U.S. officials anticipated that they would be used to strike Crimea. I know the U.S. still officially recognizes Crimea as part of Ukraine, but uh, to turn Crimea into a site of hostilities would be to go well beyond where hostilities were underway, uh, starting with the invasion on February 24th, and this would that broaden the parameters of the war very substantially. Um, and I see uh, Andrew is, is in the queue, and I'm sure he probably has more info on that. So we'll uh, let's go to oh okay, let's, well let's go to Andrew first, and then uh, Eric second. Hi, I don't have my headphones, so I'm going to be really uh, brief. Oh, it's I was okay. Just posting from ASB Military News Telegram. In the uh, chat I posted on July 13th, caliber high-precision sea-based missiles hit the building of the garrison house of the officers of the armed forces of Ukraine in the city of Vinitsa. The Russian Defense Minister reported, according to the Ministry of Defense of the Russian Federation, a meeting with foreign suppliers 
and the command of the armed forces of Ukraine was held in the building of the officer's house, and they're saying that these people were what killed. What city was the, this in? Vinitsa, V-I-N-N-I-T-S-A. Okay. Now, the thing yeah. that drew, drew my is eyes... That the, is that the city where there was that other attack earlier uh, this week? I'm, yeah, it, it just is. just happened on July 13th, so I'm not sure... Okay. Um, all I'm saying is interesting about this is that they're saying that they were meeting with foreign suppliers. Yeah. So my question is, is this what triggered the warning for Americans to leave? Like maybe there are Americans killed. I, I don't even know what the likelihood of that is, considering Americans are going and fighting and dying. And we only find out like a month later they're even there. So what are the odds these are arms people from the West and they got killed? Yeah, the Russian Defense Ministry claimed in a military briefing on Friday that Thursday's cruise missile attack was directed at a building where top officials from Ukraine's air forces were meeting foreign arms suppliers. The the attack resulted in the elimination of the participants, the ministry said. Okay, so that's a big deal potentially. Yeah. Um, Because the only cover – I mean I almost feel embarrassed because the only coverage I saw of the attack – I hadn't been following the uh, nitty gritty of the Telegram reports, but uh, the only—it's funny because the only coverage that really came out through the Western media, as usual, was all about how it was this brutal attack on just a purely civilian uh, target. Yeah, so. they just re- reprint the Kiev Independent. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, right, which was the peak, which is the peak of. Re- which is the peak of reliability, as as I um, routinely informed by Ilya Poroshenko or wherever that guy's name is. Uh, only on, once uh, the war started. On Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> well, it barely even it, it was barely even formed when the war started. It only was formed last December, thanks to an emergency grant from the uh, EU's equivalent of the National Endowment for Democracy. So. So yeah. Anyway, I just thought that um, might be a possible. Uh, possible link to the announcement that Americans are supposedly uh, supposed to leave. I'm, I'm not sure. It could be something to do with Crimea. It's the whole thing's so opaque. It's really just a guessing game. Yeah. 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 Um, it's definitely plausible and I'm glad I'm now aware of that. All right. No problem. Um, you know, I'm, uh, yeah. All right. Thanks. Uh, telegram for you. So thanks. For your time. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Uh, all right. You you're up. If you're there. Yulu is not there. So now we'll go to trusty old Eric, who I'm sure will have a clever intro. I'm feeling shy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was just my, I had to charge my phone so I couldn't get on uh, the call right away from before. But, okay. Uh, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I I, uh, I look forward to your clever little remarks that brighten my day. Sorry, you 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 came in and out there, but well, my little clever. Bonus I, I look forward. I look. I said I look forward to your clever little little remarks to brighten my day. Yeah. Okay. Here, and here it is. It's that, okay, if, if Trump is Caesar, then Pompeo is Pompey, right? <laughs> okay, it. let me give that some thought. Um, no, I mean, uh, I think it's interesting with Pompeo because it's like, um, I don't think he really had a 
serious break with Trump. It's just he left because the Secretary of State usually serves like one year, right? Or, or I don't know. No, Pompeo like, never. Pompeo never left. Pompeo only left when the Trump administration left office. Pompeo never left. Oh yeah, you're certainly right. not under any acrimony. Tillerson left because he was fired. That's who Pompeo replaced. Pompeo, Pompeo might, have be, might have been the longest-serving uh, Trump administration official with whom Trump didn't have any serious issues, I think. Well, I think then, I mean... You know, a higher-level prominent official. I guess maybe Mnuchin would be another exception. But other than those two, um, Pompeo, you know, especially, uh, you know, Trump fired Tillerson over Twitter. And and there were even problems with her. There were even problems with uh, Gina Haspel, Pompeo's successor at CIA, um, because apparently Haspel would not uh, sign on to various. I I don't even remember exactly. There was some kind of potential intelligence gathering initiative that Trump wanted after the 2020 election, and Haspel was averse to it, and Trump considered firing her. Then the point is. No, there were, there were no rumors of any kind of break between Trump and Pompeo that ever emerged, as far as I'm aware. So that, that, that puts Pompeo in a unique, a new, a uniquely uh, leveraged, potentially, uh, situation with Trump. Now, tr- Pompeo and Trump did have this minor, like, uh, political skirmish in uh, April in relation to the Pennsylvania Senate primary, if you recall. Because, of course, Trump was supporting... Dr. Oz and uh, Pompeo traveled to Pennsylvania as part of his, you know, pre-presidential political activity and did an event supporting this guy uh, McCormick, who was the chief rival to Pompeo and or chief rival to Oz rather. And Pompeo did a press briefing where he said that, you know, there are big outstanding questions about whether. Oz would be eligible for security clearance because of his connections to Turkey and, and on and on. So there was that one like uh, back-channel political conflict potentially between Pompeo and, and Trump. But other than that, there really isn't anything, which, again, I think if uh, seems to solidify or enhance the, the stature of Pompeo vis-a-vis Trump himself. And... Um, you know, I could see Pompeo potentially being, you know, a vice presidential pick, or who knows exactly. But uh, he's he's clearly machinating in such a way as to maximize his political leverage. Right. There's a. I think that's true because VP. Sorry, that's my dog. In the because um, VP is um, wide open, of course, and Trump is a lock on the nomination. And so far as if he runs, right? I mean. That just doesn't really change. So if you're Pompeo, you can say that you're running, and then as soon as Trump announces, you know, coordinate a time to endorse him and then bend the knee. And if he's willing to play that game, um, and who knows? I mean, is Pompeo able to keep, you know, I guess the other, I guess, deep state forces or however you would say, but the establishment, I mean, is, is Pompeo going to be able to hold them in line, I guess? Um, but, uh, sorry, uh, don't, he's really barking. <laughs> um... But yeah, with Pomp- and then the other thing with Pompeo is, of course, you know, the serious, I guess, Christian nationalism slash um, imperialist, you know, uh, vision that he has, and whether I mean, there's just 
I don't see, I still don't see Americans, you know, of any stripe really wanting to sign up for any of that. I don't know, what do you think, if there's any appeal to that? Um, well, again, I, I mean, I do think there's a reason why these Republicans of Pompeo's ilk keep tying Ukraine back to China because they can use that to bolster this argument that if the U.S. gets complacent right now, then it's ceding kind of global supremacy to this pan-Eurasian colossus. And that in the long run is going to be bad for the average Joe. It was, that was more or less the argument that, that Pompeo tried to make to give this homespun version of why the average Kansan has a deep vested interest in the outcome in the Donbass. And, uh, you know, by extension, Taiwan and all this. So, um, you know, I, I think insofar as they're making this argument from national greatness or national standing or even talking about you know, the economic components of growing American hegemony into the Indo-Pacific in addition to Eastern Europe, I, I think there's a way that the, in which they can whip up kind of classic interventionist sentiments, even amongst segments of the population that might otherwise be skeptical of those arguments. Um, you know, especially if there's some incident in the future where, you know, some American vessel is attacked or, you know, who, who knows? There's an infinite array of potential episodes that might be seized upon to kind of engender this response within the, the populace. And I think, you know, uh, Pompeo is like is setting, setting the stage for him to be a leading quote unquote voice in uh, making the most of whatever opportunities of that kind arise. Did Pompeo ever say anything about stop the steal? Um, nothing that was ever particularly extreme. Uh, I think, I think to the extent that I've heard him talk about it, I mean, he definitely didn't talk about it in this speech or in this appearance at the Hudson Institute. Uh, I think he's talked about, you know, Americans are, are right to have some concerns about mail-in balloting and, you know, pretty uh, generic versions of the stop the steal type arguments. It's definitely nowhere near as far as Trump himself went or, or other Republicans. So he's tried to play it cool in that area, I think. It's such a, yeah, it's hard to believe though that anybody would uh, be able to um, beat Trump in any uh, Republican primary. Um, do you still think that that's the case? Um... You know, I think that I think there's a clamor with um, among Republican elites for Trump not to just be the coronated nominee. Most of them probably would prefer DeSantis, and that includes Republican elites who have spent. You know, I mentioned this on Twitter earlier this week, but there's a segment of Republican elites who have spent. have spent the past uh, six years trying to intellectualize Trumpism as this uh, formidable force and give it a positive spin. 
Uh, even most of them seem to desperately not want Trump to be their standard bearer for the next six years, which you know is, is understandable. Um, but I, I guess I just don't see it seeming to work uh, in terms of another candidate seriously competing with Trump. And I made this argument after uh, Roe versus Wade was overturned, but now Trump has an additional weapon in his arsenal by being able to accurately tell evangelical Republicans that uh, he is the only guy in the past 50 years who actually delivered on his promise to overturn Roe versus Wade by appointing the appropriate judges and it would seem to enhance Trump's status in that section of the Republican electorate, which is obviously very active in Republican primaries. Um, and again, it's difficult to see how anybody could seriously compete with that. But I think there will be an attempt to nourish some candidate um, to to do so. And again, but it just—I mean, does I mean DeSantis is already, is a pretty young guy, and I'm I'm not sure if he'll want to spend years in like all-out conflict with Trump, which you know is going to be the case. For anybody who does challenge him, like it's not going to be gentle, most likely. Um, but then again, I mean, well, I guess there, 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 there is an argument that, like, when you have when the, an opportunity seems to present itself, and you have a lot of momentum, that you sh- you should you should act on it. You know, if you're an ambitious politician, which you know DeSantis clearly is. But um, so I don't know. I guess my, my my intuition is that it's difficult to see how anybody can seriously compete with with Trump. Uh, but then again, I guess who knows? Um, Trump's what biggest vulnerability with his base would be uh, perhaps the vaccines, and um, I don't know. I think that's uh, what what any other line of attack for DeSantis other than that one. But you know, but, <laughs> but but that wouldn't be a very. I mean, DeSantis set up a whole vaccine distribution program based on Operation Warp Speed, or at least you know that. Uh, DeSantis did a state-based vaccine distribution scheme. So, I mean, how is he going to differentiate that from the federal one? I mean, it's just uh, that you you have to be uh, you you have to be straining to try to come up with some kind of line of attack there. I would think. How about um, so? How about on the Democrat side? Because um, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, if, you know, it seems like even this past week the worm has turned, but what's wrong with going ahead and just saying, you know what, I'm ready for Kamala. At least at least Kamala isn't physically decomposing in front of us, you know, even if she can't win the next election. I mean, neither could Biden, right? But who knows? Well, what do you what do you think of any of, uh, of that? <laughs> uh well, I mean, the thing that would prevent most Democrats from just resigning themselves to the inevitability of Kamala is that it's pretty clear that she's even less popular politically than Biden. So maybe they just want a warm body who could actually complete some sentences in Biden's place. But I mean, I have no, I, I see no real reason why Biden was, would be stepping down unless he becomes so genuinely incapacitated that everyone acknowledges it's like an immediate danger to him and the country in the nuclear codes. And I, I doubt his depreciation is going to be that extreme in the past, in the next year or two, 
that it'll get to that point. Um, you know, you know, yeah. I mean, and, and then especially especially if Trump is continues to be his foil, I mean, he, he 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 Biden's gonna be able to say, "Look, I'm the I'm the only guy who beat Trump, and he's only four years younger than me." True, and you know he won't be wrong on either count. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna look back. Um, I don't know a hundred years from now and be like, "Well, we were so lucky we had Biden to help us uh, dodge that Trump bullet." I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the thing is, is you know, it, it's one thing to for who can finish out this term and then who can be the nominee. There's all the talk about Gavin Newsom. I'm from California, you know, so the idea of a Newsom, I'm somewhat um, interested in a, you know, Newsom, I guess, or California playing even more of a role. But in any case, um, it's hard to it's hard to think that how they would handle that uh, handoff, because it seems like, I don't know, I mean, if, Repu- if Trump is going to be, I don't know, I mean, we're not going to have an open opportunity to actually contest who's ru- ruling us for a while. I mean, on either side, you know, uh, it seems like because... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats, I mean, what kind of primary would they allow, even if it was Kamala, you know, and Biden was, you know, something terrible. I mean, wasn't around. Right. But would they even allow someone to displace her? Or... Oh, actually, the question I, I do, th- I, do think, I do, I do think the contender. The contender. With, Remind... uh, Nan- What's her name? Nancy. Oh, geez. Forgot it. Uh, the actress. It's where, um. Jeff Bridges is the president, and then he wants to resign so that he can let his female VP become president and then be the first female president. So I was just wondering. No, is it any good? One. Oh, it's like it's like a classic. You know, there's a bad senate, there's a bad Republican because she has to go through these confirmation hearings where they go through like her sex life and stuff. Um, but it's um, Nancy. I want to say it's not Nancy Grace, but it's this actress Nancy something. I'm pretty sure. Um, uh, the contender, and then uh, Gary Oldman plays the evil Southern representative. Joan, I see Gary Joan Oldman, Allen. Joan yeah, Allen, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, but I, uh, Biden yeah, no, I haven't seen. I, like, I don't even know if I've ever heard of it. Actually, like, I feel uh, that was me. I was a loop again. Yeah, yeah. I, I doubt. You know, I doubt. I doubt that the there would be a completely close. I, I doubt that they would uh, close off the primary or anything if for Kamala. Um, in the way that they would just for an incumbent president running for re-election. Um, I guess it's possible. But I think Kamala's flaws would be glaring enough that there would be enough of a groundswell within the party to demand that there be like an open primary season. I mean, I just don't think it's obvious that Kamala can... They would wipe the floor with her, uh, meaning pretty much any Republican who wins. But uh, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, ultimately, it's a parlor game, which is why I try to avoid punditry. But here I am spouting off as a pundit. All right. uh, We'll leave it there for now. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll reconvene fairly soon. All right. Take care. Indeed. And it's a heat wave in Britain right now, I'm told. 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you happen to be there, I don't know. What, what can I tell you? All right, bye.